Hey, hey, welcome, welcome. My name is Sydney Lai. Thanks for joining at season three, Decoded, a podcast for developers. And I'm just like, hey, I'm excited to be sharing some some knowledge, some entertainment, and especially sharing an interview with Jeremy Keith, who has been a longtime contributor to the developer ecosystem as an engineer, building with and towards and for progressive web apps, resilient web design. I am just so excited to share that with you. And if you want to continue hanging out and learning on your dev journey, I would recommend you joining me in November. November, we have OSDC, which is the OWL Systems Developer Conference. There's going to be 50 sessions, technical sessions across the board on web development, optimizing architecture, different types of verticals such as AI, IoT, and blockchain. And it's completely designed for the developer community. So I really hope that you can join us speakers in across 150 plus countries. So there's going to be a really great perspective on how devs around the world are building. So with that, let's just dive in. Let's let's have fun with this. All right, let's talk about some PWAs. I am so excited here today to be talking to Jeremy Keith. He is a software engineer known for his very popular website. That's actually how I came across you. And then the books that you've written, the podcast, you're also a musician. I just really wanted to sit down with you today and understand your perspective of where progressive web apps are going and kind of approaching that from the lens of really resilient design. Yeah. I mean, it's the question of where progressive web apps are going is, is a good one in that I feel like they're not going as fast as they should be in the sense of the thing with progressive web apps is that pretty much every website could be a progressive web app. And there's very little reason not to turn just about every website into a progressive web app. And yet I don't see the uptake. I don't see everybody jumping on it and turning all their websites into progressive web apps. And I have some ideas why that might be, but um, it's certainly not from a technical reason, I don't think, because to make a progressive web app, it's, you know, HTTPS, service worker, and uh, a web app manifest, which is basically a JSON file. So nothing too onerous there. I think I think maybe there's more cultural reasons why people are not jumping on it. Yeah. I think oftentimes when we as engineers, as we as technologists look at the development of programming products, startups, the evolution of technology, some people do absolutely talk about it. Some people don't. And I think what I really want to mirror you on is actually talking about the cultural connotation of how these are being developed. So you kind of already mentioned that already. Can you dive a little bit deeper in terms of like why we're not adopting and your intuition is that's actually cultural. Love to hear your thoughts. Well, the thing about what a progressive web app gives you in terms from, from the user experience is that resilience that I like to talk about in the sense of if you're on a flaky network connection or if you're completely offline, this website will still work. Um, the idea that you could add it to your home screen and you could launch it just like an app. None of those are the core features of a website, right? You still want to build your website to do whatever it is your website does, whether it's a, a news website or an app, whatever it does. And so because being a progressive web app isn't a core feature, it's something you add on to an existing site, maybe that's one of the reasons why it's not really seen as a 
must-have, because it is a nice-to-have. We can't say, like, every website has to be a progressive web app because it is, by definition, progressive. It's something you add on top of what you already got. And I do, I also think maybe the fact that we're talking about invisible things, like how your website works when there's a rubbish internet connection or no internet connection, that's one of those invisible things. And in web development in general, I think we are biased towards what's visible. We're biased towards the pixels on the screen. We're biased towards the user interface. But we tend to be pretty bad at things that are invisible. And that can include some pretty important stuff like accessibility, security, privacy. All of these things are invisible and they don't get prioritized. And I think maybe it's because they're invisible. And a resilient website that works offline or a progressive web app is also kind of an invisible feature. And you'd only notice that something is a progressive web app when something goes wrong right? We tend to design for the happy path. We design for everything working fine. We don't tend to think about the what if. What if something goes wrong? What if the internet connection is gone? So yeah, that's what I think is is maybe at the heart of it is this cultural bias towards the visible. Mm. What do you think helps developers kind of move away even from their own blind spots? Because if you talk about a lot of products coming from the SFs, the New Yorks, the Londons, whatever it is, you have stable internet connections, but then you still have a whole consumer base, a whole country to serve where maybe the internet connection isn't there. I'm, I'm sure you have already heard of how software engineers, gamers, and even consumers in Cuba do a lot of their consumption of the internet. And, and we don't live in that a dearth of internet connectivity or, or it's just, it's not it's not something we're preemptively knowing to build for so so I'm curious in your back pocket if you happen to know some traits or example teams that does a really good job of considering all the variables I have heard of some teams doing some exercises almost like is it chaos monkey exercises but for performance where one day a week the wi-fi is throttled or you have to use your phones, or things like this. And that is a good idea, because yeah, when you're making websites, you're generally on a very good connection. But the people who are consuming that website, you have no idea what their connection will be like. And so it is tricky to put yourself in their shoes, I guess. So I have heard about some teams yeah, doing these kind of exercises where it's like no Wi-Fi Friday, or oh, I'm trying to think of some other ones where they deliberately change the experience. Well, I mean, one of the things people can do is, and again, try this for one day a week, is unplug your mouse and only use your keyboard to navigate the oh, web man. for a day to get a feel for the importance of keyboard accessibility. And then maybe that will increase your own empathy for doing that when you're building websites yourself. Or one day a week, you switch browser. You just try a different browser than you would normally do. So just little things to get you out of the, the comfort zone. I guess. But the truth is most people do experience some very spotty internet connections in their everyday life. Like, you know, maybe when you're sitting at work and you've got a, you know, a nice wired connection, you're fine. But on the commute into work or going home, you might be on public transport and it goes through a tunnel or you find yourself without an internet connection. And those situations are exactly when things like progressive web apps would shine. But again, they would shine in the sense that you wouldn't even notice, right? 
You only notice when something isn't available. You only notice when I can't reach a website. You don't notice when something just works. It's like air conditioning, right? Nobody's ever been in the middle of a meeting and stopped a meeting. Can I just say the air conditioning is just right? It's perfect, right? You only ever comment on it when something's wrong with it. And I feel like connectivity is like that as well. We only notice it when it's gone. And with a progressive web app, the whole point is you won't notice even when it's gone. So no one's going to remark on that. No one's going to say, I had a great experience with this particular progressive web app because it will just feel like everything was working. Wow. I mean, what an unsung hero. And the fact that you were able to illustrate that so beautifully and effortlessly, it's a true nod to you as an artist, right? I am curious, when when you say some of the challenges is cultural, how do we as devs learn to prioritize this? Is it Can it be a priority? Yeah, I think one of the other cultural aspects, so I talked about the fact that we have this bias towards the visible, and that's that's something we, we can do these kind of exercises I was talking about, where you kind of develop more empathy for unexpected situations, unexpected ways of navigating the web. But one of the other things, I think, from a cultural point of view, is we've taken on board, in web development, we've taken on board a lot from software development, which is great because we've got so much to learn. And web development, you know, obviously to begin with was kind of Wild West territory and we were doing everything by the seat of our pants and it was good to look to other disciplines like software development see, oh yeah, things like testing, right? That's a good thing to do, let's do that. But the thing is, the web is a different medium and this can seem quite subtle, but I think it's actually quite deep in that most times when you're using a piece of software, there is an interface. So the software and the interface are more or less one and the same. But on the web, different people with different browsers, with different operating systems, with different internet connections can have a different experience of the same website because features might not be evenly distributed. So it's possible to have multiple interfaces for the same website, that there isn't one single pixel-perfect version of a website. So you think that's actually important? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, I do. Because when you bear that in mind, you start to build in a different way. You can build in a, in a more layered way. You can start to think, okay, well, if I can't rely on any feature being available, how do I build anything? And what you do is you start by thinking, well, what's the most widely available set? And usually that's HTML. You can be pretty sure that whatever web browser or operating system or internet connection, they can parse HTML. So you think, okay, well, how would I begin by providing just HTML? And then think about, okay, now styling. How would I layer on top styles? And even there, some styles will be available to some browsers and maybe not other browsers. And that's okay. That's fine. That's what the web's about. And then you can start to think about adding on the functionality with JavaScript. And you can think about really specific features like, well, if geolocation is available, then we'll do this. Or if we have access to, I don't know, the accelerometer of this device, then we'll add this on top of what we've already got. And that's a different way of thinking to assuming everything is available at the start and building with that assumption in mind. Now, that way of building, but of assuming everything is available at the start, makes total sense if you're building software for a known platform. So if you're building for iOS, I can assume the person has an iOS device if I'm building for Android. But if you're building for the web, you can't actually make any of those assumptions. I mean, you can, but there's definitely going to be people who don't fit those assumptions. They will be using a browser or an operating system, something you're not expecting. 
I never thought about this before, but just hearing you talk, something I'd love to hear your perspective on is we started as localized applications, moved into web. Do you think we're transferring back to localize or is that not even relevant? So do you mean about where the computation resides? It can be that or it can be where users are consuming the applications themselves. So do you mean in terms of distribution around the world or? Ooh, yeah. I'm thinking either web-based or desktop-based. Very simply. Yeah, Yeah, very simply. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in theory, the great thing about the web is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your device is, desktop, phone, tablet, fridge, as long as it can parse HTTP requests, then it should work. Again, maybe you get very different experience depending on the features. In practice, though, and again, this is actually another cultural thing. In practice, I feel like the web has absolutely conquered the desktop or laptop, to be more precise. It's like most people these days, like if you ship Chromebooks or literally this, you ship a laptop that all it has is a web browser, people would probably be okay. I mean, you can do your word processing online. You can do your graphics editing online. You can do your video production online these days through a web browser, which is pretty remarkable. But over on mobile, the web is not in a good place. And again, I would compare this to the progressive web app story. It's not for any particular technical reason. Web browsers on mobile are these days very fully featured. They absolutely have the same capabilities that native apps could provide, really. And yet people would tend to use native apps on a mobile phone rather than use a website. And that to me seems a real shame because in some ways the mobile use case is almost better suited for the web. Like the idea that I walk up to, I'm out and about, I have my mobile device, I walk up to something that has a URL and I go to that URL. Maybe I scan a QR code to go to that URL. Maybe I type it in. In some way I go to a URL, boom, I'm instantly at this website. I do what I need to do. I accomplish my task and then close the tab and get on with my day. And that is kind of a superpower of the web that once you have a URL, you can instantly get to this thing and do what you need to do, and then maybe you never visit it again, and that's absolutely fine. Now you compare that to the native app experience, which is to do anything, I have to go to the app store, download the app, install it, use it, and now it's it's on my phone, and I have to remember to delete it at some future point. It seems to me like that the web use case is, is perfect for mobile, and yet the web is losing, I think, on mobile compared to native apps. And that is entirely to do with the experience of trying to do anything on a mobile phone on the web. Not for technical reason again, but just the fact that you try, I don't know, search for a recipe on your mobile phone, hit one of those results on your search engine of choice, and then play whack-a-mole with the pop-up for notifications, the pop-up for subscribe to the newsletter, the pop-up for the cookies they want to install on your browser. You know the experience, right? It goes on and on. Again, none of those are technical reasons for the web to be losing on mobile. Those are cultural reasons. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, because the way we built for mobile is during a web desktop first experience. If we had started with mobile and then backtracked into or forwarded into desktop, right? That's that's going to change the way we had experience with mobile first. If technology was mobile first, but of course everyone could just argue that for mobile to even exist, desktop had to come first. There's also, there's different projects. I don't know if you happen to be familiar with Urbit. Urbit? What's it called? Urbit. I think it's you. Urbit, don't yeah, think so. yeah. I'll share that with you later. But I mean, basically, they're looking to build a computer 
So Urban is designing a computer and computers were designed prior to knowing that the internet was going to exist. Urban is building a computer knowing that the internet is already here, right? And, and I think with mobile phones, it's this is a very long-winded way of making connections, is that mobile phones, of course, well, phones and then mobile phones were created before the internet was created. And then very quickly, like, oh, how do we put the internet on the phone itself? And, you know, fast forward to today, I think that's kind of what you're saying. It doesn't seem like a very natural experience. And, and you yourself having been a software engineer, having just been a consumer at the very least in these industries for the past 20, 30 decades, is the transformation of architecture going to force developers' adoption of progressive web apps? Or is it still just kind of on the mercy of the company or developer who wants to implement it? It's kind of a way of saying like, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of is the transforming architecture itself through the decades going to be a forcing force? <laughs> I don't think we'll see the same situation that we had, for example, with when the iPhone came out. And suddenly everyone who was making desktop websites, assuming that websites were going to be a 1,024 pixels wide or whatever, suddenly started freaking out and going, oh my God, my website looks terrible on this new mobile phone from Apple and how do I make it look good? That was a forcing function. And what that did, the release of the iPhone and, and other phones not long after, kind of showed the assumptions that people were making. The problem is not with this phone. The problem is that you were making websites with the assumption that they would be seen on a desktop screen of certain width. And so that was a forcing function. And then we got responsive web design. You know, there were some technical things came along around that time, like media queries, which really helped. And then Ethan Marcotte coined that term responsive web design. Luke Rabluski started talking about mobile first again. So there was this kind of forcing function. With progressive web apps, I don't think there's the same pressure. Again, because it's kind of invisible. But the idea with progressive web apps is, well, you're building a website anyway. Add on this extra stuff to make it work offline, to make it installable, all this kind of stuff. So there isn't the same urgency, I think, that there was with, say, responsive design. So I do think it is going to be down to whether developers want to do this. I will say one thing, though. When responsive design came along, a lot of people said, well, this will never take off. And all the examples were people's blogs. You know, my blog was responsive, but people go, well, well, it's fine for you to make your blog responsive, but it's never going to work on this really complex website that I'm building. And then what happened was some really high profile websites went responsive. Boston Globe was the big one. And then the Microsoft homepage went responsive. And then suddenly, everyone started making their websites responsive. So maybe something like that could happen with progressive web apps. That said, there's already some poster children for progressive web apps. But again, you wouldn't realize they're progressive web apps, right? So if you on your mobile phone go to Instagram.com or Twitter.com and you log in, you start using it, the experience is pretty much like using the app. And if you then add it to your home screen... You'll have an icon for Twitter and an icon for Instagram, just like the native apps. And from then on, you could open those instead of opening the native apps. And they would feel exactly the same. So those are pretty big names. Pinterest is another one. So you already have these quite big websites using these technologies, making progressive web apps. But again, it's not like a progressive web app is visible. It's sort of under the hood. It's an invisible user experience 
aspect to the sites. So I don't think we're waiting for some big poster child of progressive web apps to come along and then suddenly web developers will go, oh, well, if they've done it, then I'm going to do it because we're kind of already there with Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, all of these sites you can name that have already turned their websites into progressive web apps. And yet, unusually, I would say, people aren't copying them because usually when those big websites do anything, everyone runs to imitate them. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And you've brought up just even now a few examples. Um, I do want to be mindful of those, maybe for more junior developers who might be listening. Could you explain what a PWA is or or give some like very clear examples just to set context? Yeah. And, and this is actually, you would think this would be a straightforward question, but if you were to if you're a junior developer and you start searching for what is a progressive web app, you will read a lot of conflicting stuff out there. So I will give the very simple, I believe simple, technical definition, which is a progressive web app is a website that is running on HTTPS rather than HTTP, so it's secure. And that's most websites these days. So that's the first, there's three criteria. That's the first one. Second criteria, it has a JSON file which is a web app manifest. And what that is, JSON is key value pairs. And in this case, the key value pairs are describing metadata about the website. So that'd be stuff like, here's the icon for the website. Here's the theme color for the website. Here's a short name for the website. And all of this information can be used if someone were to add the website to their home screen. That's what that web app manifest file is for. Okay, so that's two criteria, HTTPS, web app manifest. The third criteria, and the really interesting one, is the presence of a service worker. And what a service worker is, is a JavaScript file. You might think, oh yeah, okay, a JavaScript file. I use JavaScript all the time, I understand. Except it's not like your other JavaScript files. It's very different. In some ways, it's almost more like a cookie, if cookies could contain executable code. So the user visits your site, and this service worker script gets installed onto their device. And so the next time they visit your site or as they browse around on this visit, every time they make a request for something, a web page, an image, whatever it is, before that request goes out to the network, to the server, it hits the service worker script first. And the service worker script, you might have written instructions in there like, oh, actually, if you see a request like this, instead of going all the way to the server, look in this cache over here, or we can pre-cache these things. You could basically give it instructions on how to behave. So this service worker that's now installed on the user's device is like a proxy. It's like something that sits between the browser and the server. And how you use that is entirely up to you. So you could just use it to boost performance to say, well, we'll cache a lot of things and we'll reach into the cache wherever possible. You could go really extreme and say, you know what, once this service worker is installed, we'll make it so the user never has to hit the server ever again. It'll be completely offline first experience in, in that the user makes a request to your website. Instead of that request going out to the server, it hits the service worker first. The server worker script says, oh, we've got everything cached here, use that instead. And so you could have something that works completely offline. Or you get something that's kind of a mixture. You have There's an architecture called an app shell model where you cache kind of the bare bones of the interface and then you fetch the data using the service worker, like fetch some JSON from some uh, API endpoints. That's quite a popular pattern. And the problem is if you start searching for what is a progressive web app, you will actually see definitions that say, oh, a progressive web app is 
this particular architecture, like it's a single page app plus a service worker. And it's like, no, 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 it doesn't need to be a single page app at all. In fact, I think some of the most effective progressive web apps are more like publications. Like you imagine a newspaper website that's a progressive web app, then that experience we were talking about earlier where, you know, you're on the commute home, you're on public transport, you go through a tunnel and it just kept working. You wouldn't even notice. That's what really benefits. Okay. So then I definitely have a question with this then. When it comes to building PWAs, are you saying that the architecture should actually lean into loosely coupled services in case there is any kind of unknown variable that you need to adapt for? Could be a drop in Wi-Fi security, desktop platform itself. It entirely depends on your own use case. So for some kinds of services, software you're providing, it's really important that the freshest content be available. And so you would write the service worker script to say, okay, it's important that you go out to the network to get that content. But you still might be able to cache the CSS or some images, icons, stuff like that. For another situation, it might not be important at all that the information be fresh. It could be a book for example, or documentation or something. It's like, okay, once they've actually got that downloaded and you can get your service worker to do that, then even if there is an internet connection, let's go to the cache instead. We could always update it in the background, right? So it depends. It depends entirely. But the main thing, actually, I would say to do with architectural decisions and progressive web apps is it doesn't matter. And maybe this is another reason why there's been reluctance for people to embrace progressive web apps is because, again, when you search for this and you read these articles, it does sound like, oh, I have to change the architecture of my entire website in order to turn it into a progressive web app. But actually, that's not true at all. Like I said, these are things you add on top. You add web app manifest file with that metadata. You add a service worker script. That's it. It doesn't matter whether you've got a single page app or a WordPress blog or some other framework or no framework at all, whether it's a static site that's using a static site generator, doesn't matter. The service worker is something completely separate. That does confuse people. I've heard people say, oh, um, we build using React or we build using Vue or Angular. So how does a service worker work with that? And it's like, well, it's a completely separate thing. It doesn't matter that you're using React or Vue or Angular or anything. The service worker part is, is this separate thing. And I think that makes some people uncomfortable. I think that's a really good perspective. And and this really begs me to ask, like, do you think PWAs are pushing forward, I guess, the landscape of how we are building? Or do you think it's, I mean, is this still kind of a nice to have? Or is it pushing something forward? Is it a precursor to something? It is very much a nice to have, I have to say. I say that as a huge fan of progressive web apps. It's kind of a testament to how well a service work has been designed that you can't make a website that relies on a service worker. I mean, you could try, but it would be very hard. Because think about it, even if your web browser supports service workers, the first time you visit my website, the service worker hasn't been installed yet. So I have to make sure the website works without a service worker first, and then layer on the service worker as an enhancement. And I like that. I think that's the way most technologies should be used. Make as few assumptions as possible first, and then throw on those features as enhancements, but don't make those features a requirement. And so because service workers have been designed to be an enhancement, which is great, I love that design choice, it also means that it's never going to be a core technology. It's always going to be something you layer on top. And that's a good thing. Your core technology should be whatever 
makes your service or your website unique. But that does mean I'm trying to convince people to use a technology that isn't technically necessary. It's not necessary. It's good. It'll improve the user experience. It'll make things more resilient. But it's technically not necessary. However, I would also say, though, if you do adopt a PWA approach and the whole idea is to create resiliency, isn't Zappos just selling shoes? But the huge differentiator and and almost moat that they've built around is that customer service. And, And you don't see it, but you experience it. It's kind of a weird analogy, but that's what comes to mind. And this goes back to the invisible stuff. Customer service is invisible. A lot of the best user experience stuff isn't necessarily in the interface, right? It's in the the service design, the end-to-end experience, that how things tie together. And that's sort of all behind the scenes, behind the curtain stuff. But I would say the web development community is pretty bad at invisible stuff like resilience. Or give you another example, performance websites the typical website has gotten heavier and heavier instead of lighter and lighter, which is weird because there's so much we can do now without having to add more. Like browsers can do so much for us is what I'm trying to say. And yet websites just keep getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And again, this is on mobile as well, right? Which, which where you really feel it. But because performance is invisible to the person making the website, because they've got that nice internet connection while they're making the website, it isn't prioritized. See also accessibility, even stuff like security, privacy, right? All these things, because they're invisible, they don't get prioritized. So then what do you think about PWA adds to the resilience of creating web technologies, consumer applications, and how can we I don't know if we want to bake that narrative in of PWA contributing to the resilience of of websites, but I think that it's, well, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll let you take it away. I'm actually very curious just to hear your perspective on this. Well, first of all, there is the literal resilience it gives you in that, okay, if it's a PWA and you've, and you've written your service worker in a thoughtful way, then your website will literally be more available than if you hadn't written that service worker and made it into a PWA. There will be situations where users will still be able to accomplish their task, even if the network connection isn't there. So that's a very literal example of resilience. But the I think maybe the deeper sense is that mindset I was talking about, where you see, okay, I'm going to make the website work first, and then layer on the goodies, and the goodies in this case being a service worker, right? It's this enhancement you add on top. If you take that mindset, it could unlock a lot. Like, first of all, the mindset of beginning with, well, what is the core functionality that I'm providing? So you might, let's take I don't know, let's take something like Instagram. What is the core functionality of Instagram? It is to view images and to post images. Okay. And now how would I make that available with the fewest number of assumptions, right? Okay, well, I could literally provide HTML of images and text, right? The image element. And then when it comes to posting images, well, there could be a form with an input. Input type equals file and you can upload an image using that input. It's not a great experience, but it could be done. So once you've got that, you've made something that's very, very widely available and very, very resilient because you've used the simplest possible technologies. The key is, at this point, you don't stop. You don't think, well, I've done it. I've I've provided the core functionality. 
ship it. You think, okay, now that you've done the core functionality using the simplest possible technology, you think, how might I improve this? And you can run through all the possible technologies. You might go, hmm, how might geolocation improve this? How might a service worker improve this? How might some other JavaScript API improve this? And the great thing is that whatever you decide to add on top, because it's an enhancement, it's not a requirement. So you're not making a website now that requires geolocation or requires this particular JavaScript API. And so that mindset, which is the service worker mindset, the progressive web app mindset of thinking in terms of enhancements, it's a very powerful mindset to build anything on the web because the result will be something really resilient. Now, the the actual use case might be that 95% of your users get all of those enhancements. They get the geolocation stuff. They get the JavaScript API stuff that you added on top. Great. But you're also taking care of those, let's call them edge cases, but the situations you can't foresee. People with older browsers, different devices, something you hadn't foreseen, they will also still be able to use your service because you started with the most basic technology. So that way of building, that way of building in layers, that's what gets you the resilience. I love that you brought this up. I was just going to ask you, what are some layers considerations should developers be mindful of as they're looking to tackle this? Yeah, so once you start thinking this way with layers, what it means at the beginning, you kind of, you go as broad as possible. Think, what's the simplest technology, right? And like I said, that's often just HTML. And that's a good thing to cultivate. But the really interesting thing is that once you start, once you get to the stage where you're adding the enhancements, you can flip the mindset around and say, but I know now that I've got a solid base that I'm building on top of. So I could add enhancements, even if those enhancements were only available to a small number of people. So the problem these days is that web developers will often not use a browser feature because they'll go on to caniuse.com and they'll see, ah, oh, well, the browser support isn't great yet, so I won't use it. And that's Fair enough if you were going to use that feature as a requirement. But now that you're building in layers and you're just looking at these features as enhancements, just, I mean, the enhancements make the service. But my point is that because your mindset has flipped now to the enhancement stage, you could use a feature that's only shipped in one browser or zero browsers yet, but you know it's coming in the web standards, right? So that actually gives you this enormous sense of freedom to think, oh, I'm going to totally use this new cutting-edge feature. I'm going to absolutely use this thing that only shipped yesterday as long as I use it as an enhancement and not as a requirement. But what this all goes back to is having a mindset that understands there isn't a single interface. There isn't a single way that everyone's going to experience what you're providing. And that's a very web thing because that's not what other software environments are like. I think it's unique to the web. Yeah. I was just going to ask then, if you think this is unique to the web, do you also think that this is unique to a specific industry? Is there a specific tech vertical that would actually benefit from PWAs more? Personally, I think almost every website could benefit from being a progressive web app. If it's the kind of website where somebody is literally only going to visit it once and never visit again, then there's not much point adding a service worker because the whole idea of a service worker is it's kind of for subsequent visits or subsequent navigations. But those are generally pretty few and far between. Usually when people point to examples of progressive web apps, they point to things that are quite app-like. So the Instagram progressive web app, Twitter, Pinterest, stuff like that. But actually, I think publications are where progressive web apps really shine. 
I think it's more like the the reading experience, the having document-based things, making those resilient, making those work offline, I think that's where it can really shine. So I'm surprised that we don't see more magazines, newspapers, those kind of websites layer on a, a service worker to add that extra resilience to just improve the performance in some way. So personally, I think publications, again, people probably might be confused because they see the word progressive web app. It's got the word app right in there. And they think, I'm not building an app. I'm building a publication. I'm building a website. And they think the progressive web apps are not for them. That's a bit of a shame. I think there's a bit too much emphasis on the app and not enough emphasis on the progressive part. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Would you also expand your own definition of publication to include also other formats of media, not just word and print, but maybe video or audio or that at that point, that wouldn't be really relevant? Absolutely. Audio is a great example. I've got a progressive web app I built, which is, it's basically just this archive of conference talks, audio from conference talks, this conference we ran for years. And you can go to the website and you can listen to the audio of a talk. Or you can hit a button that says save for offline. And then when you're at any point, maybe in an airplane or maybe in a submarine under the sea, somewhere where you don't have an internet connection, you can visit the same website and it still works and you can see what you've saved offline. And when you hit play, that's not going to the server that's on your device because you saved it for offline. And that's audio that's being cached there. Would also work for video. Video files start to get pretty large, but still doable, I reckon. Definitely audio, certainly images. And you get this great performance boost because now there's there's no request going out to the server. All that stuff is coming straight off the device. You do have to be respectful of the user's storage on their device. That's why I think it's a nice pattern to offer up some interface element, like, you know, save for offline button toggle, something like that. So then the user is actively saying, I want this downloaded onto my device. That said, I've actually, I've been presumptuous with some of my progressive web apps, I would say, by caching stuff without asking for permission. So my book, Resilient Web Design, is a website. It's a book that is a website. So you go to resilientwebdesign.com. Now, the thing is, as soon as you visit resilientwebdesign.com, the service worker installs on your device and then executes. And the instructions say, okay, I want you to grab the HTML and the images for chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, the whole book. So from then on, as you read the book or you close your web browser, you go away and then you visit later, there's literally never a request to the server because that stuff's never going to get updated, right? I mean, maybe occasional typo, but it's pretty much set in stone, so I don't need to make a request to the server. Now, I didn't ask anyone's permission to do that, which is quite presumptuous. So, I mean, there's, there's a gray area there. I will say the entire storage of the book plus images is less than one page on Wired.com or The Verge or most publications these days. So I think I'm being a reasonable citizen of the web. I'm not completely filling up people's storage with, with this stuff. A deviant dev. I'm just kidding. But as you talk about this type of storage, this actually begs me to ask, do you have any perspective or foresight in terms of how PWAs might even co-create or rely on or break on maybe peer-to-peer -peer storage, IPFS, some that kind of movement? What is to come in the next few years? Yeah. So... I'm very interested in ideas around decentralization, everything except blockchain. I have no interest in that. But I, IPFS, stuff like that, very interesting stuff. 
and this sort of an associated movement or mindset around trying to do as much as you can locally. So basically avoiding going out to the network. So obviously service workers really do play into that, this idea that instead of thinking the network is there by default and it's exceptional when the network goes away, like it's an exceptional circumstance, like you say you're in an airplane, you go through a tunnel, stuff like that, to shift the mindset and go, let's assume there is no network and build like that. And then only use a network when you absolutely have to, when you really, really need to. So some people have built progressive web apps that, yeah, literally they are on one device, your device, and they're yours and and they never ping anything, right? And like, maybe it's a to-do list, maybe it's a, a bullet journal, something like that. There's no reason for that to ever hit the network. It's your data, it's it belongs to you. Why should that be on a server somewhere? In fact, it's it's kind of almost more bureaucratic hassle to store that data on a server and think about data protection stuff and GDPR and all this stuff. It actually makes more sense to say, right, everything happens on your device. You're responsible for it. It's yours. It's you know very private, very fast, very performant, and very secure. So a service worker could be vital to this idea of, yeah, local first or local only you want to really push it like what if we can literally make this so once this thing is on your device it will never make a network connection ever again a service worker is key to that you can see i'm like freaking out because i just have so many questions i have so much to say i think that as just a general fan of osent i want to really dive a little bit more into this perspective that you have which is about how do you also localize and lack for a better words, maybe localize this kind of ownership. I wonder, as we talk about culture, is it almost a nod to us as these human instincts of we, we just now want to own our own stuff for the past, maybe five, 10 years, everything's been on cloud prior to that. Everything has been to us again. So is it bring it back into our own ownership. It's kind of like you can, I don't know, there's Netflix. Why are you still buying DVDs? But people just like to buy and hold a collection of DVDs. I don't know if that the tangent made well, sense. Well, I think that, yeah, to absolutely definitely makes sense to me because there's kind of a parallel movement, I guess. So this isn't to do with service workers or progressive web apps, but this idea of ownership. There's this, I don't know if movement is the right word, but there's a website called IndieWeb.org, this idea of the indie web, And it's a very basic premise, which is that you should have your own website. A while back, that wouldn't have been a very controversial thing to say. But most people these days, you know, when they post a picture, they do it to Instagram or Twitter. When they share their thoughts, they do it to Facebook, Twitter, whatever. And the idea of the indie web is why not do that on your own website? Have ownership of it. Now, that doesn't mean you don't use those other services. So for example, I do this on my website. If you ever see a tweet from me, I did not go onto Twitter and make that tweet. I went to my website, I posted a note, and then I posted a copy of that to Twitter. Same with anywhere on the web. I post off my own website first and then syndicate out. Now, what that does is it really changes my relationship with all these services, like Twitter, Instagram, any of these things. I don't feel beholden to them. I feel like I'm using them more than they're using me because they're just other places for me to syndicate my content, but I own my stuff on my own website. And that, that's a very different feeling. The problem is that this is a great thing to do if you have the technical chops to do it. The problem is making your own website and posting stuff to a website is still 
the barrier to entry can be a little high for a lot of people. If you, you still need a bit of technical savvy, even if it's to install a, a content management system or blogging software, something like that. And what services like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram provide is convenience. They're super smooth, super convenience. So the ideal situation would be to get, get to a state where it's as convenient to post to your own website as it is to use those other services. That's kind of the end goal, I think, yeah. for the indie web. And I think that that's convenience as a service. And I think that there's also an appetite. What you have just described, it's brought up so many memories of, I think, I'm not Gen Z, but I'll talk about them. But from a Gen Z appetite perspective, a really popular application right now is called Dispo. So feel free to check it out. Dispo is actually invested by Alexis O'Hanahan, the previous founder of Reddit. And Dispo, like the Instagram example that you brought up is that you take photos, you share photos locally amongst your friends. You own this. This is not designed for kind of external web based. It's photo ownership sharing almost locally or peer to peer, essentially. So we're here talking about culture, consumer appetite, what is to kind of the next transitional phase. And then kind of just to bring it all the way back to PWAs itself, I think that the question that I really pose is how, if consumer appetite is going towards that direction, how do we also help each other as developers learn to prioritize and adopt PWAs and, and optimize for a world that is to come and maybe it's just for the next 10 years, maybe it's just for the next generation. You've seen so many generations of tech consumers and maybe it's that that chapter of like, hey, let's bring everything. Um, maybe localized isn't the right word. I don't know if it's native. I don't know if it's local. Uh, you know. It's tricky because if I knew how to convince developers to start building this way, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be trying to do it. I'd be trying to convince them. I don't know how to do it, frankly. I do know it, it would be very hard to, if you're working somewhere, you've got a service that's a website, it's on the web, and you want to add a service worker, you think it's the right thing to do, it'll improve the user experience, that's actually going to be pretty hard to get through the process of agile or, you know, going on your Jira ticket and adding, make a service worker for this, because like, now you've got to provide the business case, what will what will that add? And you say, well, the user experience will be better. It's like, eh, pretty wishy-washy, like, show me the numbers, show me the money. And Maybe in a way what this comes down to, the reason why progressive web apps haven't seen the uptake I hoped was that they are great for the user experience, but they don't necessarily provide any direct business benefit to a company. Direct. I mean, they'll make your service more available, which you think, you know, more resilient, and that, that should result in better business, better sales, whatever metric it is you're chasing. But they are mostly for the user's benefit. Now, I personally think that web developers should first and foremost be thinking about users. Sadly, what I see is that web developers first and foremost think about themselves, as in developer experience. They use the technology with the best developer experience, even if that's at the cost of user experience. Secondly, and this is understandable, business benefits. They will use technologies that will directly affect whatever the bottom line is, whatever metric the company is chasing. And only thirdly, the user experience. Now, I would love to see that completely inverted, but I don't know how to do it. Jeremy, that was such a beautiful and introspective reflection on just the state of affairs for devs, dev adoption. 
and really the moving forward of PWAs. I, Jeremy Keith, thank you so much for joining today. I so appreciate it. And I, I just want to give you like a huge shout out. I'm, I'm a huge fan. You've, you are such a great role model for what is to come in development and just a lot of your insights that you've shared throughout the years. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, thank you, Sydney. It was my pleasure. Thank you. All right, rolling back, right? You uh, you still have battery on your phone? Because I hope so. I hope so. I was like just shaking in excitement during that whole conversation. I just, there was just so much to reflect on. And I think what I really appreciated was Jeremy's dive into kind of the cultural nuances that we as devs should be considering as we are building. So that's all I could really say. And, and you know, I really want to make sure that I extend that invitation and that ask for culture. So feel free to just DM me on Twitter. They're completely open. If you have any thoughts or questions, if you have any requests, some topics that you want to cover, I would really appreciate that. I'm also just like always so excited to meet other developers in the ecosystem. And I want to just provide whatever resources or toolings that you need to help you build what you're trying to accomplish. So with that said, I'll see you in the next episode. Feel free to download, hang out, stream. Let's do it.